What is GDPR? And more importantly, how does it impact you and your company? Join internationally known data privacy, data protection expert, Jonathan Armstrong, and Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, to learn more about the burgeoning world of data privacy and data protection. After listening to this episode, you'll walk away with a greater understanding of what this means for you and your organization. Life with GDPR is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox back with Jonathan Armstrong for another episode. Jonathan, first, uh, welcome. But can we get a uh, check-in from staying at home in the United Kingdom? <laughs> Thanks very much, Tom. And yes, staying at home is, uh, I, I guess, now five weeks uh, for me. And um, yeah, so far, so good. We Our backyard is looking uh, tidier in some respects than it used to, but the makeshift badminton court is ruining our grass for this season. But there are people in a much worse situation than me. So we had a final resolution of the Morrison's case, and you and I had a chance to talk about that on an earlier podcast. I was fascinated mm. with it uh, because it allowed me to completely geek out on an area of law that I haven't practiced in about 33 years. Nevertheless, uh, I think we had a uh, rational decision uh, from the UK Supreme Court, but perhaps you could uh, give the background facts again, and then we can explore uh, what the underlying court's decision was and how that was uh, overturned by the uh, uh, Supreme Court. Yeah, sure. Yes. So, uh, in uh, very simplistic terms, this concerns an employee at Morrison's who was in the audit team, and he was asked to prepare a list of uh, employees to give to the company's auditors because they were doing a test on payroll and. There should have been a bit of an alarm bell that rang because the file was too big to be emailed uh, out of the system. So they put the file onto removable media to hand over to the accountants. Now, uh, the backstory was that there had previously been a disciplinary investigation into this employee over an incident in Morrison's post room. So Morrison's are a retailer, a little bit like a smaller version of Walmart. And some white powder had been found in the post room that uh, traced back to this particular uh, employee. And originally, people had thought the worst, there'd been an investigation into this white powder, but it turned out to be a sort of nutritional supplement rather than drugs. And the employee concerned had got a little uh, side hustle going where he was selling this powder uh, via eBay. Now, uh, that's relevant because it seemed that the employee concerned still bore some ill will from that investigation. And he thought that he hadn't been treated that fairly. So he bore a grudge. And when he got hold of the file of some just under two under 100,000, 99,998 employees were on uh, the disk. He, uh, he, he passed a copy of it over to the auditors, but he kept his own copy as well. And uh, subsequently, when he got even more upset about Morrison's, he gave copies 
of a CD with the data on away to three newspapers. And these files had a lot of information on that 100,000-ish employees. They had their names, their addresses, their gender, date of birth, home and mobile phone numbers, national insurance numbers. That's a number in the UK that's used to identify an individual, like a government-assigned number, bank sort codes, bank account numbers, salary details. So almost the full deck that you would want if you were going to uh, commit uh, identity theft. And, um, and as I say, he sent his CDs to newspapers. Uh, round of applause, I think, for one of the newspapers involved, because instead of running the story, they uh, rang Morrison's and said, we have a CD that looks to uh, be all of this information. Within a few hours, the file had been uh, uh, removed from the place where it was, and Morrison's called in the police. Now, subsequently, this uh, individual was arrested. He was charged with uh, a, a, a criminal law offences, and in 2015, he was sentenced to eight years in prison. Now, what then happened is a... Uh, firm of uh, lawyers in the northwest of England thought that they would bring civil proceedings. Now, the Information Commissioner's Office, the regulator, hadn't uh, taken any action against Morrison's, but they decided to bring civil proceedings. And uh, they said that there was potential liability to 100,000 employees who are in the database. And this is where we got to the uh, first court hearing, where the judge decided that Morrison's were not primarily to blame, i.e. they weren't responsible under what was then Principle 7 of the Data Protection Act, uh, and it's now the sixth principle under GDPR, because they said that, they, uh, that their adequate technical and organizational measures hadn't failed in this case. But they did decide that Morrison's was vicariously liable. So in simple terms, Morrison's uh, stood behind the actions of the employee because they said that, um, that they'd obviously employed a skeleton, uh, and they'd also selected him for this particular task to take the data from the PeopleSoft database and give it to KPMG, the auditors. Now, to cut a long story short, Morrison's then appealed that finding. It went to the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal uh, agreed that Morrison's had this vicarious liability for Skelton's action. And then it's gone to the Supreme Court just recently, again on this vicarious liability point. So it's important to say that the uh, appeal courts haven't really looked at, at what you might call the primary liability point. Did Morrison's do all that it could to protect the data? These cases have really focused on this on the secondary vicarious liability point, did Morrison's underwrite the actions of bad man Skelton?
The last podcast uh, we did on this case, we got into a fascinating discussion on the differences in vicarious liability and primary liability. And uh, at least uh, under the laws of the great state of Texas, uh, vicarious liability for a corporation, uh, every corporation is liable for the acts of its employees, which are within the course and scope of their employment. Uh, Outside actions outside the course and scope of that employment include frolic and intentional Mm -hmm. actions or criminal actions. Uh, And that is the situation uh, which I thought uh, covered this case. But with the um, requirements under GDPR, I think Article 6 now, it it struck me that we might actually be closer to a primary liability here. Uh, Certainly, the background of um, the employee would at least raise a question, if not disqualify that person from being in that position. So that was one thing that concerned me. But the second thing that concerned me was how, uh, even if you had an employee who uh, had no grudge against the company, uh, should they have been allowed uh, to simply uh, take the information, uh, make it available uh, because it was requested? Should there have been additional oversight uh, of this type of request? Uh, Should there have been additional protections or some way to secure the information? So I guess those were some of the questions this opinion raised for me. And it also struck me in uh, reading the quarterly summary that uh, this Mm. opinion could well be the basis for uh, a successful action, a class action of of literally hundreds of thousands of people, uh, even though uh, the plaintiffs in Morrison's were ultimately not successful. I think that's right. I think, first of all, dealing with the primary liability point, um, I think that were this case to be decided in 2020 or were the incident to be in 2020 rather than 2014, we might see a different result. And I think that's that's for two reasons, one of which you've already alluded to. I think to uh, escape liability, then uh, a company in this situation would have to deal with the fact that they had uh, somebody who they'd already got concerns about who'd been put in this trusted role. And I think that's one hurdle they would have to jump to escape uh, uh, primary liability. Uh, I I think, uh, secondly, they'd have to prove that there are adequate technical and organizational measures in place. And that's a uh, a complicated question in itself. For example... Did KPMG need access to the entire PeopleSoft database of 100,000 people? If they were only checking salary, well, presumably, with a national insurance number to prove that they're a real person and salary, that might have been enough. Why did they need somebody's home phone number, for example, to be able to check that they existed? And is it a better system when you're doing an audit for, for example, the employer to say, here are a list of my 100,000 employees with just their employee number, for example, and then maybe the auditor could select 
because they're only doing random sampling, my understanding. The auditor could randomly sample and say, you know, we want the following details of the following 2,000 people to check. Or the employer, or, or the auditors could be given access on a limited basis, assessing access controls correctly to the PeopleSoft database, rather than somebody go through the sort of Byzantine way of taking, you know, a cloud-based system, reducing it to digital media, and and sending it Pony Express round to the auditors. So, so I think. Uh, on my sort of second limb of primary liability, if you like, I think they'd have to prove that the system they had was the best. They'd have to prove they'd have to prove that they were only using a minimum data set because that's required by GDPR. If they can't prove that, then it's an unlawful use of data by Morrison's, not not uh, not by the employee. And then I think the second uh, element of that, if I'm not being confusing is should they have had IT systems in place to prohibit the data being copied from uh, PeopleSoft by Skelton? And I know that some lawyers close to the case have said stuff like, well, if you've got a really bad actor, then you can't really stop him because, for example, he could take photographs with his cell phone of his screen and he could assemble the whole database that way. And, and and to be honest, I don't agree with that, even though I respect the people who are saying it, because there's a lot more effort involved in photographing a screenshot. You know, if you can get, let's say, 40 employees' names on the uh, screen in front of you, well, to go from 40, uh, you know, 40 people on a screen you need an awful lot of cell phone photographs to build that database up to 100,000. It's much less usable uh, as a screenshot. It's much less use to identity thieves. And logically, if he's doing it in the uh, office environment, photographing a screen, a co-worker, presumably after he's taken, you know, the... Uh, the 3,000th uh, photograph of his screen would say, Andrew, why are you photographing your screen every 30 seconds? So I'm, I don't think that just because an employer can't do everything to stop this happening doesn't mean to, show, to say that they shouldn't do anything to stop it happening. And I think there are all sorts of measures that an employer can put in place, like data loss prevention software, like restricting access rights on the PeopleSoft database, like restricting the number of fields, like managing the uh, expectations of the auditors, which could potentially have stopped this incident happening. So that's why I say in 2020, I think a court could have reached a different decision on primary liability. And having said all of that, on the, sec uh, on the vicarious liability point, I think the Supreme Court were probably correct. And we have had previous cases. We've had a whole groundswell, if you like, in the UK of extending vicarious liability to cure other issues with society, if you like. 
So we've extended vicarious liability because we said poor people like the Morrison's employees are victims. And so they have to be compensated and, and Skelton can't compensate them. So who else can we find to compensate them? And that's obviously very altruistic, but we oughtn't to stretch the law to, uh, to, to sort of make good. Um, you know, in, in the, the original court said, well, um, Morrisons can insure this liability so that they can make sure that insurance pays out to the victims. I'm not sure that's the case. You can't really get, you can't go to an insurer and say, I'm employing somebody who could be a crook. Can you insure me against their criminal acts? First of all, insurance just isn't necessarily available for that. Secondly, the premium could be prohibitive. So I think on the vicarious liability point, what the court have done is they've looked at some of the earlier cases, coincidentally one of them involving um, Morrison's with, a, with an assault on somebody, and they've tried to work out um, you know, whether this was, if you like, in the course of of uh, Skelton's employment, or whether he was, as uh, the phrases you used before, on a frolic of his own. And they decided in this case that he was clearly on a frolic of his own. He wasn't authorized to commit these acts. And after all, they were criminal acts. He went to jail for them. So not many companies authorize uh, criminal acts to be conducted. And clearly, in his case, <laughs> Uh, it seems to have been pro uh, prohibited. He was expressly told uh, not to do anything that was that was a breach of law. So, in some respects, I think the decision is reached correctly on vicarious liability. But I think there's a real red flag there on primary uh, liability for corporations going forward. And I agree with you that in other cases, we could see... Um, uh, vicarious liability as well. You know, let's say, for example, uh, the employee wasn't an auditor who was effectively told to keep data secure, but let's let's uh, speculate that it's somebody whose primary job role was releasing data. Let's say that was somebody in the in the press team. Uh, then the vicarious liability argument could work still in cases like that. So, Jonathan, under Tom's, which, of course, is one of the great words of all time, coming from Tom Fox, yes. um, technical and organizational measures, could that be broad enough to include considering how not the data is used, but even how it's viewed? So could a solution be EY has to come to our facilities and view our data on our site with appropriate access? Yes, it could. Yes. So uh, in, in this case, the auditors were, were KPMG. But I think it is um, relevant that, that people uh, check um, the actions of their auditors. Um, uh, I, I won't go into the details for, for obvious reasons, but we've just had a discussion with one of the big four audit uh, firms who was trying to do part of an audit, in in my view, in a not very uh, secure way. And we pushed back and they initially said, oh, we do this with all of our audit clients. What's the objection? And when I said to them, well, the objection is the following, they said, oh, yeah, we'll find a different way uh, to do it. 
So I think that some auditors are operating systems that are firstly unsound and secondly not necessary. And they're forgetting that they, as well as their, uh, the, the company they're auditing, are under obligations under GDPR to use data proportionately. So, yeah, I think we will see uh, see people recast how some audits are done to make them uh, comply with, with GDPR as well. Well, Jonathan, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this podcast, but this has been a fascinating case to follow uh, for the legal geeks out there, including the two on this podcast. It's been a lot of fun to, to geek out, but uh, it really has, I think, some very significant implications for the future, and, and this really needs to be studied by in-house compliance practitioners, in-house counsel, um, in-house data security professionals, and those that advise them. I think this could uh, really be a roadmap for many plaintiffs lawyers in, in just a, as a class action case going forward. Yeah, I agree. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Life with GDPR. We're going to link to the quarterly compliance client alert uh, that explores these topics in a little more depth in our show notes, so check that out. Also, uh, check out uh, the quarterly website for a great number of resources around GDPR. Life with GDPR is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. During this corona health crisis, please be safe, stay safe, and stay sanitary. We look forward to visiting with you again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.